Hello, I'm Peter Ayers. Welcome to Stages. Today, my guest is composer, producer and author Peter Pinney. At the age of 14, after seeing the musical South Pacific, Peter Pinney decided to be a composer. He had some success with radio competitions and while working in his father's butcher shop, he wrote for reviews. He met his writing partner, Don Batty, at the Arts Theatre in Melbourne in the late 1950s, and together they collaborated on a succession of musicals. The writing team of Pinney and Batty have contributed many and significant works to the Australian musical theatre canon. Their product includes A Bunch of Rat Bags, It Happened in Tangiblanca, and Caroline, as well as several children's musicals. Peter Pinney also wrote songs for television shows and theatre restaurants, and scripts for several television series. During the 1980s, he worked for the Reg Grundy organisation and supervised the production of many television drama series, such as Neighbours, Sons and Daughters and Richmond Hill. Working for Pearson Television in the 90s, he established television companies and offices in various South American countries. Together with Don Batty, he set up the Bayview Recording Company, based in Miami and Brisbane, which records musical theatre performers and reissues CDs aimed at the show music market. His work preserving and contributing to an Australian musical theatre product continues with the recent publication of The Australian Musical From the Beginning, co-authored with Peter Wiley-Johnston. Peter Pinney joined stages to reflect on an extensive career in entertainment and the rich legacy of Australian musicals he celebrates in this glorious new book. We've just refurbished it, so it's had a new lease of life. It looks lovely. <laughs> and the climate's pretty conducive to... Oh, I love the climate, yes. No, that's why I'm there. Having grown up in Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know Melbourne? I grew up in Ballarat. Oh, Oh, that's the coldest place yes, it's in cold Australia. Yes, it's colder than Melbourne, yes. Yes, Ballarat and Canberra. And don't tell anyone from Ballarat, though. They'll argue oh, with you a bit. Oh, no. no. But until you live somewhere else, you don't realise how bloody cold it gets. No, no, it was freezing up there, yeah. I used to have a place up in Mount Macedon, and, of course, <clears throat> they got cold and all around that area there, you know. Darnsford and places like that, whenever you went there, oh, God, you know. The sun hardly ever came out. Well, I haven't had to do it for many years, but remember growing up and you'd have to have a bucket, a bottle of water in the boot because your, your windscreen would freeze over yeah. just to throw around the terrible. So anyway, I'm in the tropics, or the subtropics, and I adore it. Well, thanks for having this conversation today. I've, I've seen your name on television screens for many, many years, Yeah. but also as a prolific contributor to the musical theatre. back to the beginning. <clears throat> I uh, started writing songs when I was a teenager 
and I submitted songs to an ABC program, radio program called These Are Our Songs, which uh, came out of <coughs> Melbourne. Or, I don't know that it was a national program. It might have been, but anyway, it was produced in Melbourne. And they had the AB, uh, ABC or Melbourne Orchestra then, you know. And I submitted uh, a song to the program and it was called Autumn in Love. And each week they used to give a prize, a £10 prize, to the winning song that they chose. They used to uh, launch about six songs every week, I think, new songs. That's extraordinary, really, to give young composers a a go. Yes, it was. It was a terrific program. And and everybody, uh, a lot of, you know, like Dorothy Dodd, who did the lyrics to Granada and had quite some success... Everybody who wrote anything submitted stuff to this program. Well, anyway, I submitted Autumn in Love, and it won first prize. So when you win first prize, the song gets repeated the following week. So that started me off, of course. You know, there's nothing like a little bit of success at the beginning. So how old were you when you did this? Oh, 19. 19. So, so where do you get the idea for a song like Autumn in Love? Oh, I don't know where it came from, but um, uh, it. Oh, I started writing songs about. I, I used to write songs about the weather and you know, <laughs> uh, um, Mother Nature and uh, a national anthem and things like that. I started when I was about fourteen, I think, you know, because I, I had piano lessons from twelve, and then I later on I had piano lessons with uh, Les Patching. He wrote music as well too and um, I went to him and I said you know I want to write musical theatre um, and he said bring me some stuff and I, one of the things I took him was Autumn in Love and things. So um, <clears throat> I was pleased at, at one and then I still have a recording from that series not of that Autumn in Love but a, of um, another song called At the End of the Rainbow and that's the only recording I've gotten the only one I know exists of anything from that series but I had about oh, 8 or 10 songs in the show over a period of time and then the ABC in Sydney had a a program called I think Write a Pop Song or something like that uh, this was 1959 or 1958 it was and so I submitted something to them and they uh, took oh, I think I had two or three songs in that program and that was a national program I do know that because it had Jim Gussie's ABC dance band and uh, that was the beginning really but when so, I was so, about... so, so your song would be orchestrated I guess oh the, yes it was all orchestrated yeah. and all that yeah yeah right. yeah um I, uh, when I was about 16, I started writing a musical, a musical called Golden Valley. It was set in the Golden Valley, and it was set about around uh, an orange farm and all that sort of thing. (laughs) Um, I think I wrote about eight or ten songs for it, you know. It was um, my first attempt at a show. And uh, then... 
What, what, what was your informing your knowledge of a show structure then? Because I, I believe you had a, a, an epiphany when you went to see South Pacific. Yes, yes, South Pacific was the... Uh, I saw South Pacific when I was... Uh, well, I saw it in 1952. I was born in 37, so what does that make me, 15? Yeah. And uh, I... That pre... <clears throat> my... Well, let's go back a little bit further. My... This, great, is, this is what happens with the conversation. It yeah. unravels and you think, oh, I better well, go back, well, which is my, great. My great-grandfather used to take me to the Tivoli. So he loved the Tivoli and he was English. And he took me to see every show at the Tivoli and I was only a little kid, you know, and I adored the Tivoli. <clears throat> and then um, I had an aunt, a Jewish aunt, Mari, and um, she encouraged me to go to some little theatres like, uh, it wasn't called St Martin's at the time, it was called the Little Theatre, and um, go and see other shows you know because they did uh, good work and everything but the first show I went to on my own was Kiss Me Kate Hayes Gordon in Kiss Me Kate and I think that was in about February of 52 and then later in the year I went to South Pacific and that fell in love with musical theatre and Rogers and Hammerstein who I thought were the most marvellous writers and that, you know, and I was besotted with musical theatre, and I wanted to write it. And I wanted to have something in the West End, and I wanted to have something on Broadway, and I've done that. So... Um, tick, tick. Yeah, tick, 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 tick. <laughs> it's nice to be able to say... I, I haven't actually had a show on Broadway, but one of my songs, um, the theme from Sons and Daughters was uh, used in the play uh, The Beauty Queen of Lenane. It's part of the play, actually, oh. because they talk about sons and daughters and all that. And um, they played the song Sons and Daughters. Well, that was on Broadway, and they played that every night for a year. It was a big hit. So, uh, And you, of course, get royalties for that, oh, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. So uh, although I didn't have a musical on Broadway, I had a song on Broadway. That's pretty and close. I, of course, I did have a musical in West End. Uh, With Sublock H. Yeah, Sublock yeah. H, yeah, yeah, that's right. So going back to the early days, then I was... Um, I, <clears throat> The Listener Inn used to be a publication that had um, listed radio programs and what was happening in radio, because radio was... Like a TV thing. week, I guess. Yes, For like radio. a TV week. Yeah. <clears throat> um, not as messy as TV week, but <laughs> <laughs> like, like TV week. Uh, of course, TV had only started in 56, so this was only a couple of years later. And um, they... I saw a little... They, they used to have a live theatre, a few pages on live theatre, you see. And I saw a little... Um, it wasn't an ad, but it said that there will be a meeting of the Bread and Cheese Songwriters Club at such and such a place in the city, in Melbourne. And I thought, oh, I'm going to go along to that, you know, and see what happens. So I joined this club and that was people, like-minded people, who wrote songs. I think I was the youngest there in the group. I met another guy there, though. Um, Barry Premnagas was his name. He lived in Middle Park. 
and uh, he was uh, loved writing music, and he wrote several songs. Now we did a couple of shows, end of year shows at this um, bread and cheese club, and at the end of the year they used to have a oh a prize, you know, for the best art song or the best pop song or all that sort of stuff, you know, and. Sid Elwood, none other than Sid Elwood, was the guy who came along to judge these. So who was so, Sid Elwood? He was a composer of Well, he's of in those, the book, or? you see. Yeah. He wrote many musicals, and he used to stage musicals at Essendon Town Hall with uh, orchestras, and then they'd play Box Hill Town Hall, and they'd play Brun- Brunswick Town Hall, and uh, occasionally he'd go into the city. They were all community theatre, of course, you know. And my uncle was... He used to be in some of this stuff, you know, like Made of the Mountains and all that. But Sid used to write as well, and so he staged a lot of his own productions. But he'd do Made of the Mountains and Rio Rita and uh, all that. Because back in 58, I mean, that was only, they were only 20 years old or 25 years old. Because, mm, those shows, you know, they, were quite, they were the wicked of the day. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and so... Um, Sid used to uh, uh, judge these songs and that, you know, and that was my first experience and that's where I met Sid Elwood and that. Uh, it's ironic that, you know, later on I'm writing about him in the book, but anyway. So uh, is the Australian musical getting much of a go at that stage? Because no, it's, no, it's only nothing. Not, not even our performers are getting a go, really. Pajama Game comes along yeah, in yeah, well, 58 or something. 58, but no, uh, I mean, nothing was happening. I mean... Oh, Eddie Samuels had done The Highwayman in about 1950, and that was at the King's. Um, and then there was... New Theatre did Reedy River. About the Shearer Strike. The Shearer Strike, yeah, and all using all folk songs. And so I, believe, I mean, that's uh, pointed out as one of the first jukebox music. Well, it was, yeah, really, yeah. you know, because it was known songs cobbled together uh, and... Uh, it worked very well, actually, you know. Um, but it wasn't an integrated musical, like no. South Pacific or something like that. Where the songs would uh, progress the narrative yes, or no, comment on character. N- nothing or, like that. Yeah. But um, And then we had... Finally, we get to 58, I think, and Lola Montez and the Union Theatre Company did that a musical for the first time. But prior to that, they'd been doing end-of-year stuff was a review, intimate review, which Philip Street was doing, of course, in Sydney. <clears throat> and uh, so in about uh, what came out of this songwriter, Bread and Cheese Songwriters Club was the fact that um, I met this uh, guy, Barry Prendergast, and he'd been asked to submit material for a review. Well... That review was going to go on at Williamstown, but it didn't go on. And I wrote material. And then I read where there was a new review company starting up at a little venue in Melbourne called the Island Theatre. Now, this was a church hall in Blanche Street, St Kilda. And it was run by Bruce Wishart, who got seed, supposedly got seed money from... Um, uh, What's his name? Oh, I can't remember. Somebody, Alan, an actor, who was out here appearing at the time. Anyway, 
The actor promised him money and it never came through. Right. <clears throat> That's beside the point. But he put on uh, a review. They accepted my material. Um, I think I had four songs in the review. Uh, so this was my first stuff on stage. And I was very pleased because one of the songs I wrote, which was called I Played Around With Love and Lost, was singled out in the reviews of the show. And it was the only song that was singled out in the reviews of the show. And I said, it's, I think, truth, uh, that rag. But um, they said something like, you know, well worth a place in the public's ear. So it was nice also with my first venture on stage to have somebody say that, you know. So I was away. Then I, I met Don Batty at a late night review in Swan Street, the Arts Theatre Swan Street, Richmond. And we discovered that we both liked musicals and we wanted to write musicals. So we then sat down and we wrote All Saints Day. Took about six months, seven months to write, I suppose. Are you sharing the duties of composition and, and lyricist or did... Don... No, I wrote music and lyrics then. And right. Don wrote the book. Right. And... Um, We'd never written a musical before, but my God, I'd studied plenty. Um, and I had CDs of, in a, well, not CDs. See, but LPs. LPs of so you were everything. collected cast recordings? Yes, I collected cast recordings, yes, yeah. yes, yeah. And so we chose um, St Kilda Football Club uh, and uh, Australian Rules Football. Now, what we didn't know was that the audience for musical theatre um, doesn't go to the football <laughs> and the audience of an AFL game doesn't go to the musical theatre. So although we did well and the show, we, we did a tryout of the show at the National Theatre in Eastern Hill um, and that went well and it was a four-night tryout, I think, and then they scheduled the show for a full season the following year, three weeks, I think it was. And which was good, you know, um, but they uh, <clears throat> and they had good houses. But I mean, um, as I say, uh, musicals about sport really work. Oh, the beautiful game. Well, yeah, really, yeah, you know, you can shame on the damn music. Yankees. But damn Yankees isn't about no, sport, really, is it? No, it's but about... damn Yankees is the nearest one can come to a success, really. You know? yeah. But Shane Warne, the musical, didn't, you know. Yeah. And you, you name it, you know, there's, <clears throat> they just don't work. Mm-hmm. So subject matter is important for a musical, I guess. Oh, very, very yeah. important, you yeah. know. But we were determined <clears throat> to write something contemporary because we'd only ever seen um, musical, period, Things that were set in period. Well, I, I read a comment that you made about we weren't going to have gum nuts and wattle and go the, go the gold rush way because we'd never seen a local musical about well, contemporary that's, life. That's very true. I yeah. mean, you know, Highway Man was period. The Bush Rangers. Bush Rangers. You know, uh, Reedy River was um, Shearers, but you know, eighteen whatever, eighteen ninety or something. You know. So that doesn't Shearers define an Australian musical. The Australian content. It can be about as you're about to go into, contemporary issues. And oh, yes, yeah, yes, yeah. of course. We'd never seen Australian contemporary life on stage and we wanted to put that on stage in a musical. That's why 
and we thought, oh, well, Australian rules football is ideal, you know. Yeah. All those rabid supporters and everything like that. It was a good, it's a good, for its time, it was a good little show and it entertained, had a lot of humour in it. We always agreed, or always liked a lot of humour in our shows. Feeling fine, may I say, like the feeling champagne brings, starting now, right away, moving on to bigger and better things, don't know why, don't know how. From where this feeling springs Only know life's a wow Moving on to bigger and better things The ladder of fame is right there before me Waiting for me to climb it I'm gonna see the world don't ignore me I'm gonna see the world will adore me This time up, it's my turn I'll make sure the whole world swings Ring the bell let them chime from now on i shall climb to bigger and better things now then we went overseas to london and while we were in london we wrote don't tell elena which was about uh, university students getting a part-time job at christmas in department stores a thing <laughs> that doesn't happen these days of course but um it always used to happen back then in the 60s and this went on we came back and that went on in um, uh, 62 was going to go on the national theater were going to do it in melbourne yes and they just bought a a cinema in turak Uh, it was a hoist cinema in turak village and they called it the national theater and we just started rehearsals and the theatre burnt down. So we were stuck. But then we found that we could get the Russell Street Theatre in the city, so we went to the city and we did it there. And the following year we did production at the Union Theatre. Once again, that was contemporary, you know. Are you producing the show yourself? No. No, you've got a producer. No, 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 no. We didn't produce any. Or somebody else. Somebody else bought the show. Well, that was my mantra, shall we say. You know, um, you had to write something that a producer wanted to produce. Mm. Otherwise... And and was affordable, I guess. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, what's the point of writing... If a producer wants to produce it, then obviously it's got... Could have legs... That's not to say it will have legs, but it could have legs. And that was the uh, overriding factor with all of that stuff, you know. And um, I guess you don't set out to, to write a musical to make a lot of money. If that happens, that's great. Yes. But it's a, a passion project, like for any artist creating art. Mm-hmm. But the majority of our work, I must say, was commissioned. Right. Or... Um, you know, the next one after Helena was a bunch of rat bags. And that happened because I'd read uh, the book and part of it was serialised in the Australian contemporary again uh, about teenage gang bodgies and widgies in Melbourne in the 50s or late 50s. And I said to Don, I thought that would make a 
it could be a possible musical, you see. So because your audience are familiar with the topic too, I guess. We got the yeah. book, and then we acquired the rights. We wrote the first act, and then we took it down to Walt Cherry at uh, Emerald Hill Theatre, and that Walt Cherry, that was the alternative theatre then, right. because in Melbourne we had uh, the union rep which John Sumner ran at the Union Theatre and also they did Seasons at Russell Street Theatre. Then there was St Martin's, but um, Walt Cherry at Emerald Hill, he did the alternative stuff, you know. Um, he'd do Brecht on Brecht um, and uh, he was cutting edge at the time. Really, it mm. was cutting edge theatre. So we took it, we wrote the first act, we took it down to him, we played what the songs we'd written. He commissioned us on the spot to finish it and put it into the season, and it opened in May of that year. I mean, we took it down to him, I think, in January or something, you know, and it opened in May of that year. And in the history of the Emerald Hill Theatre, it was the most successful show they ever did. They extended the run. I mean, it was a small seating area, but um, oh, I don't know. I think it's played three or four weeks or something like that. There, you know, and it's since it's the only original work that uh, Wall uh, did at the theatre that had an afterlife, and it was still being produced. Well, Magnormous did it in two thousand and uh, I don't know four or something like that. You know, so. It, it had quite a life, it did. Yeah. Magnorm's a terrific company that were doing really no, produced Australian very, musicals for a while there. Very yeah. good, yes. And so the, they did a uh, uh, production of it then. Yeah. You know. Now I have to ask the, 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 the standard question, what comes first, the music or the lyrics, when you're writing? Um, or it just depends? The idea. Yeah. I think. And um, I mean, when you're going through a, a book, uh, and I mean, a bunch of rat bags is only a part of the book, and it would only be probably a third of the actual book. So, when we decided what part of the book we were going to adapt, then we looked at it and said, Right, now, where do we need a song? What cries out to be musicalised? And um, we sort of went from there. But it was, we then, it was revolutionary too, you know, because we had a song in it called a Mason or a Mick uh, that you never get anywhere in life without them, unless you're a Mason or a Mick. And uh, that song was taken out of the show and done as a review song around Australia. And uh, at the time, but Later we, we did a, a rewrite of the show in 73 and they did that at the Viaduct in Melbourne. We did the rewrite because we felt the show needed more humour. The original show needed more humour. So we put a lot of stuff in. And one of the songs we put in was very cutting edge. It was called Saturday Night was the title. But the subtitle is Bash and Poofed is in the Park and um, this is one of the first times that gay culture, shall we say, 
was seen on a major stage here in Australia. Yeah. In a musical. Yeah. It was the first musical to have it say anything like that, you know. And the, the gang members, they sang this song, you know, that they got their kicks, bash and poof, this in the park. And uh, it was raw, but um, very... Uh, it used to bring the house down. Yeah. But it was also controversial because um, a company took the show, another company here in Melbourne did a production of it, and they took it to a Sydney festival, I forget what it was, um, and <clears throat> they did the show for a few performances in Sydney, and people walked out with that number. Well, it'd be pretty confronting, I guess. Well, it was in, in that time, 73. Anyway, uh, if we move on from that, um, because it was groundbreaking at the time. Then we did, um, we wrote, it happened in Tangerbanker, which was a, a spoof of the 40s, 1940, dramatic films of the 1940s. So Tangerblanca, a nod to Casablanca? Or? Yeah, yeah, of course. Tangiers and Casablanca, so yeah. mixed there. And John Michael Housen, uh, we got together with him and uh, we mapped out a plot, which was basically the foyer. It was set in the foyer of this seedy hotel in Tangerblanca and there's been a shipwreck and some survivors arrive at the hotel and There's a bit of Key Largo too. Yeah, well, it's all all of those <laughs> movies, and uh, one of the characters is uh, an American film star called Via Condios, who appears uh, as a Latin American blonde bombshell in everything she does, um, sort of Carmen Miranda and Betty Grable mixed up, and another was a Tweedy English woman, and she was rescued, and all she had was a parrot. And um, then there was another, the other one was the Countess, Countess Popesco, who was a European and had innumerable passports for countries around the world, you know. She was like the Marlene Dietrich character and had songs appropriate, like Woman of the World, she sang, things like that, you know. Um, that then later on was adapted and became Red, White and Boogie. We cut it down to be you to be done on a postage stamp, uh, postage stamp size stage. And um, it played six months in Melbourne. And we had a fabulous cast, uh, Leslie Baker, Judith Roberts, and um, uh, Pamela Gibbons. Did you find you were using a lot of the same performers for a lot of your work, or no, was just who really. was available? No, no, yeah. no, no. And actually, David Atkins was in that. It was one of his. Yeah. He was in that. Frank Garfield was in it, um, and uh, Gil Tucker was in it when we did the rewritten version, because we added uh, a Chips Rafferty, Aussie bloke character to the thing, you know, and. Um, that show, then John Finlayson directed it, it ran for six months, um, and then it went to Brisbane, 
a different production at Twelfth Night Brisbane. And Twelfth Night in, had just opened then theatre up there. And Judith McGraw was the countess in Brisbane. And uh, she was a very funny, it's a great role and everything. They're all great roles in it, you know. There's only six people in and they tap dance furiously and all that sort of thing. You know. So it was a fun show. The next one we did was Caroline, and that's the first time we went into period, and that was about Caroline Chisholm. Yep. St Martin's did that, and uh, I'm a, St Martin's got a grant from APRA to do the orchestrations of that show, and that's the only government grant we've ever had for any of our work ever, because we always believed in going the commercial route, and that, as I said before, you had to have a product that a commercial producer wanted to do. So they got some money to do that. Um, Did people respond to it? Audiences come to Caroline? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, it was done for years. Um, and uh, it was in a uh, um, Warner Chapel catalogue for ages. They used to license it. And every Catholic school around Australia has done a production of it, I think, you know. Right. There were a lot of them. Uh, it, the original production toured to Canberra, um, and that <clears throat> that production had a wonderful cast, but five girls who'd been leading ladies for Jason Williamson. And who were they? Patsy Hemingway, Geraldine Morrow, Leslie Baker, Carol Walker. And Leela Blake. Wow. Leela Impressive Blake, list. Carolyn Chisholm. <laughs> Patsy Hemingway had been my fair lady, I think, and also sentimental bloke. Gerald yeah. Lee Morrow had been my fair lady. Leslie Baker had been How to Succeed. And uh, Carol Walker, who played the lead in Half Sixmas. But this is the, the battle you fight with Australian musicals. The next time any of those actresses appeared for Williamson's, in the program, in their bio, any reference to Carolyn was deleted. By the firm? Well, I don't know who, but it wasn't there. So they didn't acknowledge the Australian no, musical as no. a, a legitimate form? Uh, well, I don't know. Not so but much. But it's in interesting, isn't it? Yes, yeah. not so much that, but the fact that, you know, oh, well, that wasn't important enough to include. Yeah, yeah. Really, yeah. Right. So you, you, you're not only fighting a battle to get it on, you're fighting a battle after it's been on <laughs> to have it remembered in yeah. some way. Yeah, yeah. Let alone be a repeat production somewhere. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. So that's what it was like back then. That was 71. Then we went to the uh, Adelaide Festival of Arts um, and they commissioned us to write something and we did two what we called folk operas. And they were... Two one-actors ran an hour. They played at lunchtime and evening performances. Good cast. Cast of f five. Uh, cast in Adelaide. John Finlayson did that again, and it was for the festival. And they were contemporary pieces. One was called Love Travelling Sales. One was about a, uh, a male prostitute who's hired to go travel the country to country towns and service the women 
of the country town <laughs> who pay for his services. You're pushing the envelope with subject matter, aren't you? It's great. Certainly. Yeah. And then... Um, but the story is that there's a young girl in one of the, in the country town that he goes to. And he falls in love. And she falls for him, and the women mock her and say, don't, don't get involved, don't get involved. But the, the girl does. They have a night. She pays him, but he leaves in the middle of the night and leaves the money. And... The following morning, the women said, "Oh, you know, you know." She's, but she believes that for a moment she had true love huh. from this guy. Huh. That's what the story is. That's what the plot is. And the other one was the computer, and that was about uh, computer dating, and that's very... That's before its time, really, right. that's early yes, 70s, yes, yeah. Yes, that's right. A young man from the country goes to this company and uh, is indoctrinated into um, IT, shall we say, you know. But there's a tea lady there who believes in old-fashioned love and she doesn't want him to get involved. But of course, at the end of the show, he is involved with um, the sterile world of tomorrow. Are you ask a girl out to go on a date? Feel like you arrive, cause she is late, cause it's all part of the never ending game. Takes you home, you gaze at the stars. He won't talk of love, he'll talk about cards, and then you wonder why you just can't recall his name. Man and woman, boy and girl, will always be the same. Back when our parents were young and gay, whoever got him first was master. Things haven't changed very much today. It's just If she wears my groovy suit Who cares if his hair is bleached to the root Underneath it all we can both still make the claim Man and woman, boy and girl Will always be the same Yes, man and woman, boy and girl Will always 
Tell me about Pajamas in Paradise. I'm fascinated by that title. Pajamas in Paradise, right. Well, John Michael Housen and I wrote that. Um, it was a jukebox musical, uh, but there were some original songs in it because we couldn't find uh, jukebox songs that fitted a situation. And it played the Gold Coast. And it was about the pyjama parties in the Gold Coast in the late 50s, early 60s. Um, and I remember this because I went up there and I went to them. Um, so people would uh, <coughs> gather in their pyjamas? Yes, go, gather. It's us- usually it was, you know, they had plenty of them, uh, but a, a, a um, guest house or something like that had a swimming pool and they'd host these pyjama parties and they'd have a band and things like that, you know, and everyone would end up in the pool, of course, in some way, you know naked sometimes and that <laughs> anyway it was a story about um three girls from Gympie and three guys from melbourne they all converge on surface paradise and um they meet they fall in love um but then one of the they go to a pajama party and one of the at the pajama party one of the girls gets her top ripped off <coughs> and she's seen on national television and her mother and father uh, are horrified and they scurry up to surface paradise and then of course we discover that the mother and father knew each other years ago and then they find uh, love again the mother was played by um donald lee who was absolutely hysterical in the role she was so funny so funny like you know arriving just dropping a suitcase the timing was absolutely superb. Well, of course, she's Gloria Dawn's... It's in her d- DNA. Yes, yeah, in Gloria Dawn's DNA daughter, and, yeah. Yes, and uh, so funny. It was a good cast, you know. And uh, that uh, played the Gold Coast, Gold Coast Arts Centre. And that was in hmm, 2010, I think. When you were working in television, did you work on Prisoner? Yes. Yeah. So is that where the idea germinated for Cell Block H? No. No? Um, I was head of production for Grundy Television in Australia. And every drama we made came under my umbrella. So I had to find the uh, producers and directors of Prisoner and... uh, Writers and everything, you know. The cast, because it's a phenomenal. Not the cast, no, but, phenomenal um, women came through. Oh, yes, went yes, worth well, attention. Every, everybody, said it. everybody went through yeah. there. You know, gave more work to, or gave work to every actress in Australia. Well, what happened was, and this was in about Neighbours had started, and it was a big hit. But uh, a guy came out. A producer came out from London and he wanted to do a production of Prisoner on Stage. It's a huge following, isn't it? Yes. Um, and I actually, and I'm, no, I met him in London. I'm sorry, this was before I came to Australia. I met him in London because I knew people who ran a, an agency over there, talent agency. And he was attached to the talent agency and he wanted to meet me 
and see if he could get the rights to do Prisoner on stage. I came back, I convinced Reg Watson uh, to write a play version of it, and he wrote a play version of it. And that... So Reg Reg was one of the main writers on Prisoner? He devised it, he developed it. Yes. And he... uh, That toured um, the provinces, and a couple of... Two of a couple of times actually, and a couple of the actresses in the show went over and played roles in the, in it. Now, then he came out to Australia, and he just done a very successful season of a touring um, season of Rocky Horror, and he wanted to do Prisoner as a musical, and tour that. So he asked us to write it. Well, then he went back, and on the way back to London, he stopped off in Bangkok and dropped dead. Oh, dear. So that was off the table. But we went ahead and still wrote the piece, basically based on Reg's um, script that he did for the play version. And it was a combination of all different stories that... um, uh, had been in prisoner, and you're doing music and lyrics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no. Well, Don was right. doing. We were doing lyrics together, and and then I was doing the music. Yeah, I always did music. Um, so we finished it, <clears throat> and then Helen Montague came <clears throat> to Grundy and wanted to do a production of Neighbours in the West End, and. Uh, we, because we were running neighbours and everything and Grundy and I, uh, we said no we can't do that you know you can have a few a few uh, actors but we can't give you everybody uh, so then we said but we do have this show Prison Cell Blockage and she <clears throat> got together with Mike Walsh and then they decided to do it it took about a year they pitched it to a few people and they couldn't get it off the ground and then Lily Savage became interested in it and wanted to do it. And he was the hottest drag act in Britain at the time. So... Um, Paul O'Grady. Yeah. So they... Um, they decided to do it with him. So it had to be written, rewritten, of course, to accommodate a drag queen. You know women's prison and that was inspired idea I thought yeah. frankly you know throwing a drag queen into women's prison um, so he did it and then it played the Queen's Theatre for three months it was only booked in for three months so it played a hundred performances in the West End and the following year it toured and the year after it toured I saw it on tour the following year in Scotland actually in Edinburgh but uh, so it's never been done in Australia. Um, David Spicer would like to do it, but Fremantle, the rights are owned by myself, Don Batty, and as Don is now dead, the rights have reverted to me. Reg Watson, and Reg Watson's dead, but his executives, his, whoever owns his stuff will obviously own that, and Fremantle Media. And... Fremantle Media will not 
say yes to it as long as Wentworth is in production okay. or in repeats or whatever, whatever. So we're unlikely to see it here for many, many years, if ever. But I think the time has passed in the way forward. I think back many years to the first time that we met to innocence let loose upon the break into television? I was a butcher. I had my own business. I, I went very far in the butchering industry in, in Victoria. In fact, I was on the board of uh, the Meat and Allied Trades Federation. And um, anyway, I decided to pack it in moved to Sydney and um, I decided I wanted to write for television. So I taught myself, bought a typewriter and taught myself to type and I <clears throat> did submissions. I, and I did one for Grundy, for Young Doctors, which is a program I watched. I, I actually watched it and I made a graph of all of the characters and who had been off with who and who had done what to whoever, you know. So this was a huge graph and I knew absolutely everything about all the characters. And then I wrote a submission script. At the same time, I also did a submission script to Cop Shop. And the first ones that came back were Grundy and they offered me a job writing. I took that and within about four weeks I was asked would I be an editor on their program. Um, so I did that and then I became an associate producer. Well, and this time when television is still quite young, I guess, isn't it? 20 years or so. Hmm. But you could just send in a script and be considered. Now I guess you couldn't do something like that. Yeah, people still do that, I think. Yeah? <clears throat> but... They're, whoever's in charge has got to see something there. I mean, this happened to me because later on, Bevan Lee, who created Home and Away and everything, you know, um, he did a submission for Young Doctors and his script was brilliant, you know, wonderful. Uh, but he came to work for Grundy, but he worked on it. He didn't work on that series. He worked on, I think, Sons and Daughters. Or he might have worked on Restless Years, but he worked on Sons and Daughters. I wrote for, I mean, I worked on, we made 1,300 episodes of uh, Young Doctors and I worked on 
over 600 of them anyway, and I wrote a lot of them. I did write a lot of episodes. But Sons and Daughters, uh, which I wrote the theme for, I wrote a lot of those as well. I did a few uh, Restless Years and one starting out, I think, and one Richmond Hill, but um, because I was head of production and that was a, a big job. Uh, so I rose rather rapidly when I did and one of the reasons was the fact that I'd been, had my own business, you see. So I'd handled money and staff for years and staff for yeah. years and creative people normally don't have a clue about money but I did so when I was in production it was an ideal fit for me because I was creative but I was also good with figures um, so everything we made throughout the 80s or everything Grundy made came under my umbrella Secret Valley, Tanamira, the miniseries, all of those. Then in 89, 90 I think it was, I was asked to go to uh, America and set up Dangerous Women over there in America. So <clears throat> I said yes. and um, So there's a version of Prisoner? Is it? Yes, it's yes. a spin-off right. of Prisoner, yes. That's Women who have been in prison and they... On the outside, right. On the outside, basically, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They all meet at this inn in the country and whatnot, you know. Uh, and Reg Watson conceived that too. And he went over there. But um, I was executive producer with an American friend, Calderon. And we made 52 episodes of that. There were two series, uh, 26 and another 26 <clears throat> and uh, I loved it. It was great. It was great working there. And what I loved was, in Australia, at the time, just before I went to work in LA, uh, we wanted to do a, a mini-series. Grundy wanted to do a mini-series. And we wanted to bring out uh, one actor, I think it was, and we were having problems with equity. <clears throat> and I said, but this is crazy. I said, you know, they said no. And I said, but look, we want only one person. And they said, no. I said, but you're throwing 80 odd, 90 people out of work. We don't care, was their attitude. Yeah. You know, and I thought, oh, I hate this. I hate this, you know, and I've had enough of the unions. Uh, by the end of the 80s and having worked for them because they were, I thought, you know, uh, very narrow and blinkered in their thinking, you know. So I went to the US and we were setting up Dangerous Woman and that was a program that wasn't by the rule book but we went to the unions they bent over backwards to help us because every production in LA, they want to go ahead because it's more work for their members. Mm. A total opposite to the attitude here of Australian uh, equity uh, and the unions here. And I thought, oh, this is so refreshing. I love this. I love working here. And I did. And then... Um, 
So we made that show and that took a, about a year and a half or two years. And then they asked me to go down and um, open up South America. So I spent the next, most of the 90s living in South America and, and living in Santiago, but servicing the whole of um, the area. And we made game shows. Uh, I'm In Chile, I made a, a Chilean version of Mother and Son. I acquired the rights from the ABC and we made Mother and Son. The company got them and we made Mother and Son. And then they, after they did, after I'd done that, they did it in other parts of the world. I think they made it in Sweden and I think they made it in Switzerland and a couple of other places too. You must be on Geoffrey Atherton's <coughs> Christmas card list then. Well, no, no, no. But he, <laughs> he, we sent him a copy of an episode and he was happy with it, you know. It was the one where the oranges fall into the grave. You remember that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was the fun Gold. episode. Well, we repeated that and, and did that in Chile, that... We had a, cho- uh, a choice that we could use whatever episodes we wanted to, you know, and uh, it was great. It was great fun. I love working in South America. Um, I'd always wanted to live and work in South America all my life, so this was a dream come true for me. Fantastic. So you had about a decade there? Yeah. yeah. Mm. And then left the company <clears throat> and then uh, set up Bayview in the US. So is that based uh, in LA? No, I was based in Miami. Miami, then. right. And then I, so I had that for about 10 years. Is that, so what was the point behind that? Why did you start up a, a recording company? Well, <clears throat> I've always loved records, you know, and I, I wanted to reissue uh, show LPs that hadn't been reissued on CD. And so I did a bit of that. I did like Maggie May, Lock Up Your Daughters, um, things ain't what they used to be, all Lionel Bart stuff. La Strava as well, too. His original La Strava. Um, oh, I did lots of them. And then we had a... Um, uh, Scott Siegel used to do Broadway by the Year concerts every year uh, in the Town Hall in New York. I think he used to do about three or four a year. So that and was revisiting would, old he shows. Would, he would devote one concert to say, um, the Broadway musicals are 1954. Right. And so songs from those shows that premiered on Broadway that year, hits and misses, were in, in the show. So I picked up the recording rights and I think we did all... Well, I did about 20-odd CDs of that, maybe more. And when I sold it to my distributor, Bruce, he kept on doing them and for a while, you know. I don't think they're... Uh, Scott Siegel is still doing concerts, but I don't think they're still being recorded in that. You know. Was there a big audience for the for the product? Boutique. Boutique, yeah. Mm. But your, your main drive, I guess, is just to preserve those terrific scores. Yeah, um... I, I released some Australians up too. I reissued um, Only Heaven Knows. Um, I did an Australian hair. Uh, oh, I did lots of things, really. So, after I'd left um, Grundy, or it was Fremantle Media by the time I left it anyway, I went back and worked for them 
uh, in Indonesia, setting up a show in Indonesia, a drama there. What I didn't know, I said yes to it, I didn't know that when I arrived, there was no studio. I had to supervise the building of the studio. I had to supervise where all the loos went, where the lights went, everything went, and get it up and running. Oh, it was a nightmare. <laughs> a nightmare working in a... Very difficult working in a Muslim country when you've got to um, schedule five prayer breaks in a day on a Friday, especially they had five, I think, on the Friday. Very hard. He's gone before, walked out the door, but he'll be back, or can I be that sure? For I still care. Just so long as he is there And if I could I know I should Just kick him out Because he's no damn good But I don't care Just so long as he I've always thought I was free If love's a game, I can't play it That's me That's me And now I know If he does go I want him back Because I love him so for I don't care Just so long as he's there Just so long as he is there with me Do you remember the first cast recording you bought as a young man? We've lived our life as man and wife But not with a church Yeah, I think it was... The 78 CD set of South Pacific. It was in a gatefold folder um, because they only had 78s back in, in 1952. And um, I bought that. It's uh, an experience I think, you know, this current generation miss out on because you just download from iTunes and, mm. and it's there. But the act of actually going out, buying, coming home, unwrapping it, putting it on the turntable and then just spending an hour and a half. Gold. I used to love those days. Being indulgent. Yeah. yeah. Lovely. Yeah. Lovely, yes. And now I think the next one was uh, Carousel. I bought that. So, uh, and that was an LP, Columbia LP. No, no cover artwork or anything like that, you know. Just had a, not in those days, they didn't have that. Yeah. So were Rodgers and Hammerstein your favourite composing team? I like their work. I look, you know, I like a lot of composers. 
I fell in love with Jerry Herman I, <clears throat> because I went to Broadway in 1961 for the first time. And one of the shows I saw there was Milk and Honey, and that was his first show on Broadway. And I saw that and I fell in love with his music because he wrote music that burst over the footlights. It's joyful, isn't it? Yes. And, I mean, these days it doesn't matter because everything's so highly mic'd. You know, it wouldn't matter. But back in those days, they had to have voices to... They still had some mics, but they had to have voices to get belted across. That same year I saw Anna Maria Albergetti in Carnival. And for the first time, she had a microphone. So that was one of that was sixty one and that was one of the first Broadway shows right. where they was uh, mic'd. Had, was mic'd. I don't think Milk and Honey wasn't because it had Robert Weed in the lead, Mimi Benzel and Molly Pecon. But I loved Jerry Herman's music and of course I I followed him after that. You know. I was going to do a Jerry Herman album actually. Um we never got round to it, but you know, I was going, and I did talk to him about it and everything. Yeah, that would have been great. Yeah, it would have been great. But thanks for giving us uh, this wonderful new book, the Australian musical from the beginning. Oh yes, the book. Where, where did the idea germinate? I mean, it's it's going to be one of those tomes which we'll all reference for the next several decades, I imagine. I met Peter Wally Johnson in Melbourne at uh, the exhibition making a song and dance which was mounted by the arts centre in melbourne and that was about 2003 or four i think is that frank van stratton yeah then? yeah and um, it was the first exhibition of its type on australian musicals rich livermore uh, was involved in it and he had a lot of his stuff there and i helped them a lot too you know anyway peter wiley johnson I met him there and then he wanted to come to Brisbane and interview me for a thesis he was doing on Australian musical theatre. And he did come and uh, and then we discovered that <coughs> uh, I discovered that he was a an Australian musical theatre nut. He loved it. And uh, then we talked about possibly writing a book together because we it's the sort of book we wanted a book that um, showed what had been done before because I believe, I'm a firm believer in if you're going to write for um, a musical that you need to know what's happened before. In other words, if you're going to write about Lola Montez then you need to know that there was a musical about Lola Montez or if you're going to write about Ned Kelly you need to know what's been done before so that whatever you do doesn't repeat what's been done before, but does it with a contemporary um, approach, se- yeah. approach yeah. sensibility, you know. Um, so Peter and I finally, we got together and we signed a contract in 2011. It took eight years to do the book. Wow. Um, then I discovered that um, Peter Wiley Johnson's mother took him to see Caroline when he was nine. And he fell in love with Australian musical theatre and started collecting and he now has 25 scrapbooks that are crammed full of um, Australian 
musical theatre uh, memorabilia. Uh, everything, he's got everything there. A real fan? A real fan, yes. So it was nice that my work inspired that. It was great. Yeah. Mm. So. so we can, we can uh, it's in all good booksellers, as they say. In all good booksellers, and you can buy it online uh, anywhere. And it's a delicious book. I mean, it's it's, it's several. It's quite thick and lots of glossy oh, photos. Yeah. It's, you need it's a forklift to lift it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for uh, sharing your wisdom and. and you don't want to today. know what my favourite entry is? Yeah, please do. We got time. We got plenty of time. Yeah. My favourite entry in the book, and I quoted this the other day at the Melbourne launch. I'm not you know, um, and. Queensland launch too, is a show called Tropicana and it was produced in 1962 in northern Queensland in Cairns and Atherton Tableland area and if you look down the cast list you will find that it includes a live crocodile. (laughs) And I, it's the only musical I know that has a crocodile in it. Other than Peter Pan. And the only musical I know in the world that has a live crocodile in it. It didn't sing, though, did it? No, it didn't sing. <laughs> no, no, no. So that's... It could only be an Australian musical. And I think that's wonderful, actually. That, that, um, we've got an Australian musical that's got a crocodile. <laughs> a real crocodile. <laughs> The Australian Musical From the Beginning is a glorious book documenting our rich musical theatre heritage and the homegrown product constructed from great practitioners like Peter Pinney, Nick Enright, Terence Clark, Max Lambert, James Miller, Peter Rutherford and Robin Archer, just to name a few. It's recently been released and is available from all good booksellers. You've been listening to episode 96 of The Stages podcast. There are so many more episodes you can access. I've talked to everyone from directors to dancers to drag queens, from producers to playwrights and performers. It's all in the archive. Look out for episodes with Caroline O'Connor, Geraldine Turner, Kevin Jackson, Tony Lamont, Tony Sheldon, Gail Edwards, Tommy Murphy, Andrew McFarlane and Kate Gould. Far too many to mention here, so find the podcast in iTunes and Spotify or do a search for Stages with Peter Eyes on our hosting platform, Wooshka. Thanks again for listening. I'm Peter Eyes, and this has been Stages. Sons and daughters, love and laughter,